Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah is a book that's often read and studied when churches are trying to build buildings. We're trying to pay off a building. We're not building a building. But there is much more to this book than just building a wall around the city of Jerusalem. So what you have in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have these partner books. Ezra is the priest and and helped lead the resurgence of temple worship in the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah is the prophet of God called out of um, servanthood in a foreign country where he was the cupbearer for the king, which means he gets to drink the wine to see if it's poison before the king gets it. And then he is called to go from one land to another, and, and God opens the door, the king gives him a passport, lets him leave, gives him resources, and all of a sudden Nehemiah is a general contractor for one of the largest construction um, projects in the Old Testament of rebuilding the destroyed wall around the city of Jerusalem. And if you know uh, anything about Near Eastern or Middle Eastern Old Testament life with the wall around the city, the wall represents security, the wall around the city represents protection, and it gives status to a region, to a city. What's interesting about the Old Testament walls around cities is you could have a wall with holes in it all around the, all around the city, but the gate... If the gate is secure, the city is secure. It's kind of like a rules of engagement and a rules of war from the ancient Near East. So as long as the gate is secure, even if the wall, even if you could drive a tank through it, they're not going through it. But once the gate is gone, the front door, the gate, the wall is then therefore considered destroyed and then they will knock out the rest of it. And that's what happened to Jerusalem, this disobedient people who had walked away from God, foreign lands and nations had come in, they had destroyed the wall all around the city and had destroyed the entrance to the front gate, which meant the city was now in despair. But Nehemiah is called and he is brought back there to lead a resurgence, to rebuild the wall. Ezra is there to bring worship back to the city. And we find ourselves now in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, at a time where the, the law of the Old Testament, the law of God is read by the prophet Ezra and then uh, the worship among God's people, this very sweet moment that had been abandoned and had been missing for many years is occurring once more. Verse 9, chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength as we think about joy this Christmas season continuing with that concept and that thought about joy and what it means to have joy in the Lord to have joy at this time of year and to understand what it means we are brought to this section I I am drawn to this passage because of the power of that verse that reminds us that our strength is not in our ingenuity our strength is not in our creativity our strength is not in our production value but our strength is and always has been and only will be found fully in the joy of the Lord. But the word joy is a word that often gets misunderstood or not quite fully comprehended, especially in English as we've transliterated that word into English today and we read this. And we think about joy not just in an Old Testament perspective, but it's referenced there. But then we jump to the New Testament, and here it is Christmas, and you might have banners and decorations and things that say joy to the world. And we sing these carols regarding the joy that is supposed to be evident at the Christmas season. And often when we think of Christmas, we think of beginnings. 
We think of it's a beginning of a story, and likely that's because Jesus is an infant in this story. You've got the, the story you've heard over and over again. It's illustrated today by the nativity, and you have baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the angels. But the Christmas story of the birth of Christ is not a beginning necessarily. It's, it's more like those, those renovation TV shows that are so popular on TV, whether they're taking an old house and renovating it or they're an extreme makeover kind of circumstance. It's the story of the, the rebuild, the story of the, the taking something that is broken and make it new again. But even that and those television shows and those programs, those are not so much the point. What makes it um, a hit, what makes a show something like that that people want to watch over and over again is what you see at the end of the show as they have the, the, the players, the customers, the homeowners, whoever it may be, and the new reality is revealed to them. It's the reveal that makes it so exciting. When you see somebody looking as they've lived in this old dilapidated building and now they, they pull the curtain away and there it is, the reveal. The new house is shown to them and their eyes, they start tearing up and they can't believe it. And that's that moment, that moment of reveal. And that's what Christmas really is more like. More of that than it is a beginning of a new story. It's a revelation. It's a reveal of a promise that had been given for thousands of years. That Christ is who he says he is. That Christ has no beginning because there's this misconception that Jesus started in a manger. Jesus existed before he was born. Jesus existed before conception. Jesus existed before Adam and Eve were created, for Christ is God the Son, eternally existent. If there is such a thing as eternity past, I guess there would be on our timeline, and eternity future, He has always existed as part of the triune God. But here we come to Christmas, and often we think about joy, and we think about this beginning of this revelation of this next part of the story. And there is joy to be offered this day. There is joy to the Lord to be celebrated. Joy, but joy, what is joy? Joy is, 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 is coming this, in this Old Testament world, uh, passage in Nehemiah. It's the Hebrew word shadvah which is the Hebrew word for joy, but it's also transliterated as gladness. And sometimes we'll say, well, joy is much more than gladness. And oh, it is, but don't discount that joy is gladness. It's much more than happiness, and it certainly is, but don't discount that joy is happiness. What joy isn't is just a, a facade of giddiness. Joy is a contentedness. It's a happiness. It's a gladness in the Lord despite your circumstances, despite what you're going through, despite what the doctors have told you, despite what your spouse may have said to you, despite how your children are behaving, despite where your job no longer is, it is a contentedness in the Lord, and that is where joy gives us strength. But we, we look for this. We want this joy. How do I get joy in my life? Because let me tell you, there is the opposite of contentedness that is prevalent among our culture and in many of our church members today. And how do we find this joy if it's so absent? What happens? Well, let me just tell you just briefly where I see joy found. Joy is found on the way to wisdom. Now, wisdom is much different than just intellectual knowledge and knowing more things than another person. My great-grandmother and my grandparents, all of them, but especially my great-grandmother, I remember... She, uh, she died when I was a child, but I, 
I spent a lot of time with her, with her when we were on vacation. I'd spend most of the time with her. And let me just tell you, she, from my perspective, and I understand I'm biased, but she was probably one of the wisest persons I'd ever met. She never finished high school, right? She doesn't have all the degrees, but wisdom defined her. Discernment, love, saying the right thing at the right time, understanding motives. She knew these things. And wisdom is a gift from God. In Proverbs chapter 3, it says, verse 13, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, from wisdom, is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Also translated as happy is the one who finds wisdom. There is joy on the journey of finding wisdom. And wisdom from God is given by him to his children for his glory and our good. So if wisdom comes from God, if it's wisdom from God, then the polar opposite in contrast would be the foolishness of man. And where it's not very difficult for any of us to resonate with the foolishness of man, it it may be a bit challenging to understand the wisdom of God. But even as followers of Christ, and let me just say, I know some non-believers are in the room, but you need to understand Sunday morning worship is for Christians, and so Christians listen hard. The wisdom of God is what is available to you as a follower of him. But you, like me, might find yourselves drifting towards the foolishness of man all too often. But the joy that God has offered is found on the way to wisdom. Wisdom is that discernment given to the followers of God who fear and revere him. Wisdom provides clarity. It allows a man or a woman to speak truth in ways that otherwise cannot and will not happen. Perhaps we do fluctuate. But wisdom is offered. It's God's way. It's it's that way of holiness. It's that way of wisdom. Secondly, joy is found. I believe that it can be found on the street to sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word you probably didn't use this past week outside of church, if you even used it there. But sanctification is one of those good church words that we use because what it does, it describes the process that you and I have as Christians of growing more holy in our walk with the Lord. Now, there's a room full of Christians here, but we're all over the place when it comes to the maturity uh, 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 structure here of how far along we are in maturing in our faith. Some of you are brand new Christians, haven't been a Christian very long, and so you're learning. You're not very mature in your faith yet. You're on the early roads of discipleship. Some of you have been Christians for decades, and you're in the same place as those that just became Christians, unfortunately. You haven't moved very much either. See, sanctification is that reality that one of, I've heard many pastors say this. It confused me as a child many, many times, so I'll try to make it as clear as I can here. But as a follower of Christ, as a Christian myself, who I know for sure am secure that the Holy Spirit of God resides within me and my home is in heaven, so they won't have to lie at my funeral and say he's in a better place. I will be. That I know there was a moment when I was in fifth grade when I was saved. I know, it's a new birth moment. I surrendered to Christ. I, it was a moment, it was a, it was a time of surrender, it was a time of, of giving up, it was a time of accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, believing that He is who He says He is, and even at a fifth grade reality, I got that. I was saved then, but I am being saved now. And when I ultimately die, I will be saved. See, Christians, you were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And if you've never heard that, sorry. We should have told you earlier. But you ought to get this. This is that moment of transformation when you surrender your life to Christ, secure in who He is, and secure that He will not leave you. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life if and when that moment of salvation occurs. But 
This journey of sanctification is like the crock pot of faith, right? It's a slow cooker. God is continually whittling away all those things in your life that do not honor Him. He is growing you in the faith. You are being saved. You are being sanctified. You are being purified. You are being made more like Him. You are mature. And oh, Christians, I pray you are more mature today than the day you prayed to ask Jesus into your life. If you've not, you've just kind of like, it's kind of like that guy that gets on the on-ramp to the interstate and then stops. Not only have you frustrated your own journey, you've ticked off everybody behind you. And your kids in the back seat won't get where they need to go either. Our journey of faith is a continual process until, until that moment of glorification when God brings you home. Been to a few funerals in my life. And in the South, we pretend like everybody goes to heaven. Just go to some funerals, you'll hear that. And people will say things like, well, he's home now. Let me promise you something. As a follower and a child of God, I know that when I die on this earth, I will be home. It's not that they have to pretend I'm in a better place. It's not that they have to say things to make my family members feel better. It is an assurance because I was saved. And while I'm still breathing, I'm being saved. And when I finally die, I will be saved to glory and in the presence of our Father. Merry Christmas. See, that's a good story. The joy that you have as a Christian is found on the street to sanctification. Let me, let me, let me help you understand this, though, and I'm going to try to be as quick as I can on this. Modern American Christianity has done a disservice to many who have heard the message offered. We have borrowed way too much from business and marketing strategies and have sold a version of Christianity that's going to leave many people as church members with no home in heaven. Because what we have done is we have, whether it's because we've had too many crusades or too many conferences or too many conventions or too many seeker-sensitive services, we have sold this. If you would just pray a prayer, you can be saved. Folks, listen. We have a whole bunch of kiddos up here, and let me just promise you something that I could definitely do with just about every one of those kids up here today. I can get them to repeat a prayer. But that doesn't mean they're saved. You know why they'll repeat a prayer? Because I'm an authority figure. And maybe I'll give them a piece of candy if they do it. That's how some missionaries work. And it's a disservice to the gospel. And they will be held accountable. Just because you have the capacity to repeat a vocal statement someone else has made does not mean you have Jesus. But let me tell you this, I'm not so opposed to praying the prayer because that's how my journey began. I did pray a prayer. I prayed a prayer of surrender. In a very simple childlike way, I said, Jesus, I need you in my life. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want a black heart. I want a, a pure heart. I want, I want to know you. And at that moment with a childlike understanding of sin is real and Jesus is real and he paid for my sins and he rose again, I was saved. But let me just say, I've done enough youth ministry and enough camps and enough events and enough services to know there are a whole lot of people that are banking on the fact that they have the capacity to repeat words to get them into heaven. Listen, that's a disservice. Not only that, we're lying to people. See, the, we, we say in the church discipleship is what we ought to be about and most every christian will go amen that's right but discipleship becomes this fuzzy reality we're not quite sure what to do with 
And we've actually convinced ourselves if we go to Sunday school, we're getting discipleship. That's not true either. Discipleship will not take place quickly. It cannot. We like instant everything. Instant Christians just add water. There's your Baptist version. But Christianity takes place at a moment, but the discipleship as a follower and the growth as a disciple takes a lifetime, and it takes intentionality, and it's going to mess up your schedule because your schedule's not going to let it happen. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And so I read this this morning, and I thought this just kind of, oh, this got all over me. It said, if our aim is getting people to repeat a prayer, we are only partially obeying Jesus. And let me help you understand. Everybody that's a parent understands this reality. If you are only partially obeying Jesus, then you are completely disobeying We are not called to go ye therefore and make a big church or go ye therefore and get a big crowd or go ye therefore and get as many members as you can. We are called and commissioned to go therefore and make disciples. And if we're not, we're not only partially obedient, we are fully disobedient. We are to replicate this journey in our lives with those that God has placed in our lives. And I am, I am unfortunately revealing the marketable version of Christianity that is big in our country. But let me just tell you, with the number of young people who are now declaring no religious affiliation whatsoever, we have proven that marketable, attractional, fake Christianity not only doesn't work, but they see through it and don't want it anymore either. True Christianity is what we must be focused on. And that, that wisdom that's found, that joy that's found, is found on the street to sanctification. And here's something to realize. Our story as followers of Jesus can't be about us. I had an opportunity this week to some high school students uh, from one of the local high schools was doing a project on a religious group and they tried to contact that religious group and they got no response and so I was their backup plan. And so they called me, one of our students called and said, hey, I'm in this group project, two other students, they don't go to our church, but they, I said, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. So on Monday, they came in and I said, oh, you're videoing, let me put on a better shirt. So I did that. And they wanted to ask me questions about the Church of Scientology, figuring I've been to school and I've studied apologetics and I understand different world religions. And, and when I say Church of Scientology, there are quotes around that. They ask some really good questions. They say, do you believe that the, the Church of Scientology is doing little more than fleecing its members for its money and keeping them coming back just so they will keep giving more money to pad the pockets of those in leadership? Great question from a high school student. I said, yes, and I think some Christian churches are doing the same thing. So they, don't have a, they haven't cornered the market on that. And then one of them asked this question, why do you think so many young people from evangelical churches are walking away and joining the Church of Scientology? I said, well, here's the thing that, that you know, and this is just off the top of my head, that's what I said. I, I said, you know, Americans like things that are American-made. America. And American-made's the best way, right? And so all the American-made religions tend to have a, a common theme. And I talk about religions as in false teachings. 
So all the American-made ones that, that were birthed in America, now let me just tell you, the international world has its own cornered market of false teachings too, so I'm not giving them a pass. But when you kind of bundle in uh, the Scientologist, the Church of Christ Scientist, the Universalist Unitarians, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witness, there is a common thread running through American-made religion, and it is that God is not the center and the main character of the story, but man is. Ultimately, that's what you get to. Now, they would disagree with you in many of those points, but let me just back away and just look at this. Who's the main character of the book of Nehemiah? God, not Nehemiah. Who's the main character of the book of Ezra? God, not Ezra. Who's the main character of all 66 books in the Bible? God, not the name of the writer of the book, but God. Who's the main character? It's always God. It must be God. And who are the people that are listed and, and related to? Those are supporting characters invited into the story. Your story. Who's the main character? You or God? Because if you're the main character and God is a supporting actor that just shows up to give you a little bit of pop psychology with a little bit of scripture, oh, by the way, it's not just the American-made cults that mess this up. It's some of our evangelical churches doing the very same thing. When your church services are little more than how to get through life, how to have a better marriage, how to have better finances, how to get along with your kids when they're bad, how to be a better parent, how to do this, how to do that. If every Sunday is a how-to course on how to be a better whatever you are, that's just pop psychology with a Bible propped up in the background. That's a story about you with a little bit of God to make you feel better. If your story's about you and not about God, there's no joy. There never will be. God himself is the key to the story. Thirdly, joy is found on the road to restoration. Let me do this quickly. Nehemiah and Ezra gathered with the people in Jerusalem. Israel had abandoned, had been abandoned. They had been taken over. They, they had lost their city. They had lost the temple. They had lost the wall. Everything that, that defined them as who they were, people of God, special people, beautiful city, great king, is gone. Their identity was stripped away because God allowed it to be. Their disobedience led to that, but even in their disobedience, they blamed God for it happening. But here we are, lo and behold, these people get something they do not deserve. It's an amazing story. They don't deserve this. They don't deserve anything that's offered. They get a new city, a new wall, and a new temple, and some prophets that are going to teach truth, and they deserve none of it. Why they get it? Because this is what God does. God is about restoration. God is about fixing the broken. God is about replacing what doesn't work and making it work. God is about revealing that if your story's about you, he'll back away and let you play that one for a while. But when the time is right, he's going to reveal himself to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who he is. And that's what happened when they start worshiping. It says they start crying. They're crying. They're weeping as Ezra's reading, what, Leviticus? Have you ever wept by reading De Deuteronomy and Leviticus? Why are they weeping? Because it's become very evident that that which they had taken for granted was removed from them, and now that they have it back, oh, we can't take this for granted. Hey, you know what? Sunday morning worship in Orange Park, Florida is as routine as 1 o'clock football games and college football on Saturday for many. It's routine. You can do it every week. You know when it'll start breaking our hearts? If it ever is gone and you don't have the opportunity to be here. I got to tell you this. We've got some dear church members that are sitting in hospital rooms right now working through rehab. 
that if they were able to walk back in the room today by their own volition, I think the tears might swell up in their eyes because they don't take for granted anymore what we do. I do what I do. Joy is found on the road to restoration. And finally, joy is found in the journey with Jesus. The Christmas story is not a beginning. It's a reveal. It's the picture of the old dilapidated house being restored. It's the image of that which was broken being made beautiful. It's the fulfillment of thousands of years of promises coming to be. The man, the woman, the boy, or the girl who surrenders his or her life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem. The one foretold for centuries, who grew up, lived a sinless life, revealed himself to be the Son of God and God the Son, died on a cross for the sins of all, then rose again, defeating death permanently. That Jesus has made a way. The way to wisdom is him. The street to sanctification is him. The road to restoration is him. Well, I just want joy in my life. Do you want joy or do you want everything to work out? Do you want joy or do you want to feel good? Do you want joy or do you want giddiness? Let me be honest. I want everything to work out. I want to feel good and I want to be happy. But what I need is joy. Because this is a long journey. And I'm thankful I'm not going on it alone. Because there are going to be days when people don't treat you well. There are going to be days when things don't work out. There are going to be days when you're going to wonder why is it even worth the effort. But the joy of the Lord is our strength to get through today. See, when you jump to New Testament, there's this famous verse that athletes love. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's true. It has nothing to do with the ball game, by the way. It has to do with today. You have the strength to get through today? For the joy of the Lord is the strength we need to do all things through Christ. And as you do all things through Christ, knowing Christ, surrendering to Him, here's the, He gives you the joy to be strengthened by. Great joy. For it is in this joy, it is in Christ Himself, where the joy of the Lord is found. It is along this journey with Jesus, who is alive and coming again, as our children said, that life is found. Joy is found, contentedness is found, purpose is found, and the strength you need and I need to get through today or tomorrow or the next day is found. And that's worth repeating. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Luke 2, 8 through 11, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Have you heard this before? The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people for unto you this day unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ 